This podcast is one of a series of short audio essays on individual emotions. It's brought to you by the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions, where we look to the past to understand our feelings in the present. In this episode, David Geiringer opens our eyes to the recent history of one of the most slippery and steamy of human emotions, lust. Lock a pack of scantily clad singletons in a luxury villa and watch them compete to couple up. This is the formula for the reality TV show Love Island. You can almost smell the pheromones through your TV. The show has been accused of false advertising. Critics claim that Lust Island would be a more fitting title. The feelings on show are not love, but shallow expressions of raw desire, so they suggest. Throughout history, lust has been continually defined by what it is not. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, lust is not passion, lust is not affection, lust is not sexual desire, and above all else, lust is not love. St Paul insisted that when sexual desire is severed from God, in other words, from the potential to procreate, it becomes disordered. It becomes the sin of lust. Many people today would question whether lust is an emotion at all. Lust is often understood to be a biological response, a base animalistic instinct that doesn't deserve the elevated human status of an emotion. This idea of lust as a primal urge can be traced back, like so many popular beliefs about the mind, to the father of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. He saw lust as the driving force behind the pleasure principle, or, in its original German, Lustprinzip. For Freud, the untethered power of the libido could lead to the destruction of both the self and society. Freud's lust may not have been a sin, but it was still a disorder. The history of lust raises important questions for historians of emotions. Who gets to decide what is and what is not an emotion? How have different authorities attempted to govern what we think of as authentic emotions? In the 1960s, lust became a key battleground in the so-called sexual revolution. It appeared to many that lust was transforming from a sin to a virtue. The poet Philip Larkin suggested that sexual intercourse itself began in 1963, between the end of the Chatterley Ban and the Beatles' first LP. The free love movement celebrated carnal instincts, reclaiming lust as a healthy sign of natural sexuality. 1963 was also the year that the poet Sylvia Plath took her own life. Her journals indicate that she'd been grappling with the hypocrisy and sexism that underpinned understandings of lust. She exclaimed that women have lust too, asking, why should women be relegated to the position of custodian of emotions, watcher of the infants, feeder of soul, body and pride of man? Being born a woman is an awful tragedy. Plath observed that if they substituted the word lust for love in popular songs, it would come nearer the truth.
Her comments captured a moment when Lust was starting to be seen to hold a certain emotional honesty, an embodied sensibility that could be understood and trusted, less pliable than love to the forces of commercialism and patriarchy. It's often assumed that the Catholic Church turned a blind eye to these developments in the second half of the 20th century, a stubborn stone resisting the insistent stream of sexual liberation. However, it too attempted to revise its previous condemnation of lust, notably in relation to women's sexual desires. Following the introduction of the contraceptive pill in 1961, Pope John XXIII set up a secretive commission of cardinals, theologians, sociologists and medical experts to look into the whole subject of female sexuality. One member stated that until recently, nice people had not believed it was possible for a woman to experience spontaneous sexual arousal. But that was changing now. The commission proposed that the Pope should approve the pill. It also took on previously forbidden topics such as female masturbation, and even called for an education programme aimed at teaching Catholic husbands how to give their wives sexual pleasure. From the mid-1960s, the Catholic Marriage Advisory Council in Britain started training husbands to prolong sexual intercourse with the goal of achieving the coveted female orgasm. But there was no climax to this story of Catholic liberation. In 1968, the Commission's suggestion to approve the pill was rejected by Pope Paul VI. He reiterated the Church's traditional teaching that artificial contraception was intrinsically evil. With this, a more progressive and sympathetic Catholic understanding of female sexual desire was also rejected. Huge swathes of the global Catholic population turned their backs on the Church. Many others simply ignored the Pope's teachings on sex, love and lust. Attempts to reclaim lust in the 1960s reveal the highly freighted moral implications of how we understand our feelings. Lust is no longer monopolised by religious ideas to the extent it once was, but it continues to be the subject of heated contests about what a healthy emotion is. From St Paul to Love Island, from the Pope to Sylvia Plath, lust has served as a gatekeeper for the category of the emotions. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It's part of the Living with Feeling project funded by the Wellcome Trust. We hope it helped you feel better. To find out more about our work and hear more of our podcast series, please visit emotionslab.org.